This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm. Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Tom Overton and this is Suite 212, a show which puts the arts in a social, political, historical and cultural context. Today, in fact, we're talking about the interactions between the one and the other, how capitalism hijacks the idea of creativity for the purposes of generating profit, not only debases creativity beyond the point of meaninglessness, but actually limits the space available to it. Uh, Quote, now everyone is encouraged to be creative at work, in our personal lives, in our political activities, in the neighbourhoods in which we live, in schools, in our leisure time, in the choices we make in what we eat every night, in how we design our CVs. We are bombarded by messages that by being creative we will live better, more efficient and more enjoyable lives. I'm quoting there from a new book called Against Creativity, which will be published by Verso Books tomorrow, uh, 25th of September if you're listening again. Uh, I'm delighted to say that I'm joined in the studio today by its author, Ollie Mould. Hi. <laughs> Uh, Ollie Mould is a lecturer in human geography at uh, Royal Holloway, University of London, whose research focuses on the role of urban creativity, activism and politics. He has written on the Calais refugee camp known as the Jungle and its relationship to London, on the urban politics of brutalist architecture, on parkour and activism and on the idea of cultural quarters in British cities. Uh, He blogs on his website at tacity.co.uk. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Tacity. Tacity, yeah. 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 Uh, it's got a bigger C, but I don't think that matters. Well, it's, it's the city, but it's tacity, you see. It's just yeah. a play on the word. Where you, uh, well, you can find a piece, well, there on that website, you can find a piece explaining how Thomas the Tank Engine is a nightmarish vision of a society dominated by neoliberal capitalist ideologies. Uh, Thomas the Tank Engine has subsequently taken, since taking on a whole different set of meanings. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Something to talk about later, maybe. Maybe a, an entire res- uh, an entire <laughs> suite 212 on the, the meanings of of uh, Thomas the Tank Engine uh, to follow. Uh, you can find him on Twitter on the very clean handle at Ollie Mould, uh, O-L-I-M-O-U-L-D, which suggests he was a very early adopter. Yes, yes, I was, <laughs> yeah. Ten years have been on it now. Oh, wow. Yeah. Poor you. Yeah. Uh, his uh, last book, Urban Subversion in the Creative City, was published by Routledge in 2015. Is it Routledge or Routledge? Uh, I think it's Routledge, actually. Yeah, but. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, the reviews for that included one which called him a legendary scrapbooker of all things urban. Yeah, I like that one. That was good. <laughs> it follows a roughly similar pattern to Against Creativity, the book we're discussing today, I think, anyway, in that it uh, very precisely identifies a set of um, tendencies in contemporary life under neoliberalism and then more hopefully lays out some alternatives. Uh, one of the, I think, maybe a good place to start with this book, Against Creativity, is with the, the kind of the story you tell at the beginning, the kind of opening gambit. So I'm going to hand over to Ollie to to tell you a story. Thanks, Tom. Okay, so on a cold February night in New York City in 2012, I exited a midtown bar with a friend, having just taken in a typical Broadway mega musical. Before we had the chance to get our bearings, an unkempt man dressed in an ill-fitting bomber jacket and a New York Yankees beanie confronted us. My My initial reaction was, I'm ashamed to say, one repeated countless times in cities all over the world when tourists encounter the homeless and attempt to dodge the situation as quickly as possible. However, before I could formulate an excuse, he broke into song, and he had the most exquisite voice. It wouldn't have sounded out of place in the show that I'd just watched that night. Um, Having been perhaps a bit more inebriated than I'd like to have been, I can't recall the exact words, but it started with the line, don't be bashful, don't be shy, don't be afraid of this homeless guy. Uh, The lyrics included a request for money. Um, He was, or so he sang, only a few dollars short of the price of a Broadway musical course, in which he was going to be top of the class. I forget the rest of the song, primarily because I was too busy laughing and fumbling in my pockets uh, for change. Could my money help uh, help him turn his life around and enter the magical and creative world of Broadway? Would his name soon be inscribed in neon above the bustling Manhattan streets? I walked away from the encounter, elated. Here was a guy, down on his luck, sleeping rough on the streets, but possessing a talent for song, comedy and salesmanship. He had taken the situation he found himself in and capitalised on it artistically. He was engaged in music, dance and comedy, aping the stereotypical New York City street performer so ubiquitous in countless rags-to-riches stories. A homeless person becomes a street performer, becomes a Broadway extra, becomes a star, becomes rich and famous. Proof that anyone can make it. He was being very creative, wasn't he? But the more I thought about it, the answer I hit on was no. Talented, absolutely. Absolutely. Creative? No. 
To my eternal regret, I didn't ask about his life, but his story couldn't have been unique. Back in 2012, there were approximately 45,000 homeless people in New York City, a figure still rising today. He was living in a global city that has developed under a regime of capitalism in which severe and ever-increasing social justices are inbuilt. And because of these injustices, people often have to beg, perform or rob people for money just to survive. This man clearly had a gift and he was using it in a way that many others with similar talent use it. He was selling it. This man who found himself without a home at the hands of a rampant, unjust and gentrifying urban market was doing what he thought he must in order to survive. He was using the talents he had just to scrape by so he could perform the following day and every other day over and over again. Today, the system that causes homelessness and the other related injustices such as precariousness, racism and the emboldening of fascism, massive inequality, global health epidemics and the rest is the very same system that tells us we must be creative to progress. This is because capitalism of the 21st century, turbocharged by neoliberalism, has redefined creativity to feed its own growth. Being creative in today's society has only one meaning, to carry on producing the status quo. The continual growth of capitalism has become the prevailing order of life. But it hasn't always been this way. Creativity has been, and it still is, a force for change in the world. It's a collective energy that has the potential to tackle capitalism's injustices rather than augment them. Creativity can be used to produce more social justice in the world, but it must be rescued from its current incarceration as purely an engine for economic growth. So this book will explore how creativity is wielded for profit. It will outline the ways in which people and institutions are being told to be creative in order to proliferate more of the same. But it will also highlight the people and the processes that are against this kind of creativity in that they forge entirely new ways of societal organisation. They are mobilising it in a different way. They're enacting a creativity that experiments with new ways of living, ways that conjure entirely new experiences that simply would not exist under capitalism. Thanks very much. It's all right. Um, very well told. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, I think I looked in the notes and you'd actually kind of, you did some research about that guy afterwards and he, yeah. he was, he'd been, I mean, because you saw him for a few years he was still doing the, the act I think that's right I, I looked up some um, Instagram posts and Twitter feeds and stuff which recounted that same line the one that I can remember about uh, don't be bashful don't be shy and um, there was a video on Instagram of, of the guy who oh, it was, the same it was guy, him yeah. it was the same guy yeah. yeah I mean that was from I think 2014 the post so it was at least two two years Sweet. afterwards so yeah so it's going going but what I also mentioned in the notes is whether or not it was the same guy or not it's that has been passed down to someone else mm. as a means to get money right yeah so it's obviously a you know some sort of trope in the homeless community if not this guy's story so yeah. it's um so yeah so i think that sort of just ossifies the point really yeah absolutely um i think that sets us up really really well uh the i think one of the points you make uh there and later on in the book is that the current idea we have of creativity is, a, is actually quite a recent phenomenon uh it's a kind of an ideology recently really which it's almost impossible for us to think outside of and i think uh the book's a really interesting corrective to that and i'm hoping today's show is maybe going to be part of a longer conversation which will uh pick up in later shows about about this idea of creativity and for instance, um, interesting examples of book writing projects that are going on at the minute, um, which are aimed at expanding the idea of creativity through collaboration. Uh, with that in mind, as well as today's show, I kind of was was really interested to read, uh, particularly the sort of potted history of creativity you give in the book, mm-hmm. uh, kind of almost from the Bible to Blair. <laughs> uh, and um, I just wondered if you could sort of revisit it uh, for, for the listeners. Yeah, so, I mean, it's it was a um you know, it's obviously a very difficult and nebulous concept to nail down, isn't it? Creativity, it can, I mean, that's part of its appeal today, I guess, that it's very slippery. But when I thought about it and when I um, read a lot of the philosophers that have sort of written about it over time, one of the things that really struck me was that it's a power to create something from nothing, right? It's the power to create um, subjects, experiences, things that just simply don't exist already. Um, and like I say, it's it's a power rather than an ability, because if you talk about an ability, it implies a sort of technical skill, whereas a power implies a sort of a desire in a, in, in a very visceral sense to, to sort of bring into being something that was entirely new. So, yeah, so you could trace it all the way back to, I guess, the ancient Greeks as well. But 
you know, uh, the sort of dominant idea from Judeo-Christian uh, Judeo view, the Western worldview anyway, is that it was originally a, a sort of a godlike force. Mm. It was something which the gods had, right? Um, kind of the, the Michelangelo fingers Absolutely, touching. yeah. It was something that, you know, gods had the power to create, humans just had the power to sort of, I guess, just uh, worship and just be something that they created. Um, but then as... Uh, society has progressed and um, the enlightenment in particular um, human beings became more civilized and scientifically minded and that power of creation became imbued upon us and I think Nietzsche is you know said it that God was dead and we've killed him right it was that sort of idea that um, we are the creative force of the world we are the ones with the you know destiny as our own hands we don't need a we don't need a god or a deity to, to survive so that um, imbued us with the power to create but then over time, as, as you know, um, capitalism became more prominent and, you know, right the way back from sort of the Middle Ages and feudalism and then going towards sort of mercantilism and the Industrial Revolution, uh, creativity just became privatised, became something which um, uh, had a value attached to it. Um, you know, I think a lot of the stuff I talk about um, in relation to um, the... The middle, uh, the middle Ages around the, the Commons, I think, is really interesting, mm. and it's something which, you know, a lot of people have been revisiting of late in critique to capitalism. But um, people like the Levellers and the Diggers, mm. you know, they enacted a, a very sort of creative way of living, which is about a common wealth, of sort of shunned privatisation. And there was, um, in, ironically enough, the, the, the land in which they were sort of their last bastion before it was violently enclosed is a place called St George's Hill in Weybridge, which mm. is now one of the most exclusive. Uh, expensive gated communities in the world actually um anyway so um so yes yeah, so there's this idea that um over the time enlightenment and industrial revolution and everything else it kind of um uh privatized creativity because there were people at the top of the social strata who had more time and, and um had more leisure time because precisely they had workers to do all their workers their work for them so they were able to enjoy life more and therefore were able to commission artists and commission plays and all sorts of things and it just meant that um the act of cultural production became something which was very privatized for the enjoyment of a few people who could pay for it mm. well, you, and and that's what's kind of where we are now well you talk also about this a sort of this a stage somewhere in between where you have i mean the example you use is shakespeare where people who, who are doing creative work are kind of thought of more organically within society rather than being a sort of uh, I mean because uh, the idea of the artist as being this uh, the creative uh, artist being this separate entity is a very kind of romantic one mm -hmm. kind of, and it's all kind of bound up also with uh, the industrial revolution uh, yeah and you also talk about um, one of the things that comes in along along that sort of timeline of, of, of differing ideas of creativity uh, is Adorno and Horkheimer's uh, analysis of um, yeah. sort of how that that comes that yeah well, so that's an interesting one because well it's sort of um, I guess uh, it's like the kind of baseline if you like for a lot of the ways we think about the cultural industries and the creative industries as they're articulated today it's often the go-to text um, for a lot of scholars in that respect but what they argued Adorno and Horkheimer is that the um, you know cultural production had become industrialized become part of um capitalist production um so yeah like, exactly like you say it's um uh, that creativity was something which um is no longer just part of everyday life something you consume as and when as, as part of the commons it's something which uh, feeds the capitalist process and that you know their arguments are that mass production i.e hollywood or the sort of the music industries are um a sort of um I wouldn't say classless, but they're sort of a slightly more working class form of um, consumption. Then you've got the kind of Picassos and the Schoenbergs and all that lot, which mm. are sort of more elitist sort of, and they're the real creative mm. geniuses. That's not, obviously not, that's not what they're, <laughs> that's not they're advocating that. That's the kind of, they're, they're describing the ways in which it's kind of polarised in that way. Um, and I think that, yeah, that forms a lot of the um, the basis for the discussions today, particularly about the industrialization yeah. of creativity. So you have your... Sort of one sort of very simplistic way of looking at it is you have your low culture, your kind of popular culture, and you yeah. have your high culture. And the low culture is the stuff that can be mass produced by the sort of the relatively recently produced uh, mm -hmm. um, technology of the Industrial Revolution. And high culture needs to sort of uh, hive itself, to separate itself from that, to maintain yeah. its identity as, as high. Uh, and that's. Uh, 
you kind of then fold that into um, quite an interesting point about, I, I said right at the beginning of this, we we're going to go from the Bible to Blair. Yeah. <laughs> and you, you then sort of uh, explain how that um, was sort of partly overturned by it, by Cool th- Britannia. Well, that's right. And I, I um, you know, what Cool Britannia did was to um, elevate a lot of those popular culture um, motifs into something which to be celebrated as a, I guess from New Labour's perspective as a something which gets got them into power. So it, it was it was really um, useful for Blair and his um, band of merry men in order to uh, get them into power because it allowed people to um, realise that that kind of cultural production was something to be celebrated, but also it had economic value. It had something which actually allowed them to make a living for themselves right everyone wanted to be tracy emin or the spice girls or noel gallagher it was you know this is what britain is really good at we are good at producing art popular culture which is available to the masses and we can make money from it and Mm. we can create an entirely new national economy from it so that's what blair was um you know riding the coattails on and that's Mm. why they were you know swept into power um, 97. If this if this, if this was TV, then we, we'd have some sort of images of, of uh, you know, Oasis and, and there's Downing a really, Street. Or there's a well, that's the right. There's a very famous the, the 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 famous image that everyone likes to use is the one of uh, Tony Blair shaking um, Noel Gallagher's hand yeah. at, at the um, at number ten, and that's so, the one that you know goes all goes all around the world. It's, I use it in my lectures, and I'm sure many other people do as well. <laughs> Listeners, you can Google it now. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, it's all over Google. Yeah. Um, so, but that. Uh, that sort of relationship to popular culture um, I picked out sort of a, a line that you I thought was quite nice that you used about that um, about sort of relating to people on, on a national level with its championing this is about new labour mm. with its championing of, championing of uh, popular culture and moving the economy from post-industrial service, services to the pl- 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 <laughs> it's just the coffee I promise yeah. the proliferation of knowledge-based work uh and you know things like uh, you know from call centers to startups, mm-hmm. startups, yeah. and that's sort of where we get to this moment uh, of uh, the creative industries and the department for culture, media, and sports. Yeah, yeah, and it was um, it's something which I guess was a natural progression in that respect. If you're you know working towards a new economic model that is based around you know the prevailing winds of neoliberalism and and the, the notions of. Um, uh, weightless production then the creative industries were just a natural step um you know from the sort of ashes of a rather archaic cultural industry strategy which no one the treasury were you know loath to touch no one talked about culture in, in back then it was you know it was kind of it was almost a political um suicide to sort of to champion the cultural industries and to put money towards it but creative sure people could get behind that and actually a lot of it was um Garnered from task forces, which they, which the DCMS sent to uh, the states to look at the ways in which Silicon Valley and other uh, places, Hollywood, were um, really harnessing intellectual property and fiercely defending that. And actually, a lot of those models were were transplanted into the working papers that the DCMS produced. Mm. So it was about you know the, the securing the wealth which creativity could generate and working out ways to make that profitable. One of the interesting uh, contrasts with that is um, um, Juliet, who uh, is normally is my, my co-host on this mm-hmm. show, did a, a show a couple of months ago about the uh, the Great London Council's uh, investment in culture and the very sort of different sort of model that that was. That basically kind of, I mean, it was <laughs> quite a depressing show to listen to, really, because he was talking about how basically by contrast people were just given money and space to do things and it was a, a much more genuine way of uh funding cultural production um which so i i yeah i mean the glc is again it's one of those sort of go-to um institutions which people uh, look reflect back on and a sort of a better to use a pejorative term is a way of thinking about arts arts um mm. delivery and something which actually was very keen to stop so we'll, we'll repost that one later on. Yeah but, uh, yeah. but one of the sort of the key, uh, really one of the key texts that you're, and ideas you're responding to all the way through the book, and which comes in around that kind of Blair moment, although it's slightly later, but of that moment, is, uh, is Richard Florida and his um, Rise of the Creative Class, which was published in 2002. Um, I think 
it would be really useful to as that's 2002 we've just been talk, talking about 97 uh, and the immediate sort of moment afterwards to if you could explain who Richard yeah. Florida is and, and what well, that book is well it's all part of the, 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 the Blair Clinton era right that's that, that sort of the neoliberalism on crack era which spawned a lot of this stuff and Richard Florida I guess was the, the, the one that really rose to prominence in that um, caught, caught exactly, right, exactly the right thing at exactly the right time and it was as you said, this book, The Rise of the Creative Class, which in it, he essentially argues that um, in order for a place, be that a city, a, a country, a region, to be successful, you need to attract creative workers. This is what creative workers are like. Um, you know, they're, they're usually college educated um, and they have um, a particular desires for particular kinds of consumption patterns and places that are cool. And, you know, they like to take breaks in their working day and go for a bike ride. And, you know, they, they like to sort of sit and have coffee in hipster places and all this sort of stuff. So the tropes that we now associate with the idea of the creative city, uh, he was arguing that these are the kinds of places that attract creative people and these are who they are. And... Um, you know, he had all these wonderful little formulas that he created. So, like, for example, the three T's, technology, um, tolerance and talent. These are the three things that you need um, in order to attract the creative class. So his argument was that there was this class of people there. You know, they make money from their creativity or they were lucky enough to make money from their creativity because everyone was creative, according to Florida. Everyone's creative. It's just that the creative class are lucky enough to make money from it. And so um, it was, you know, it was like gold dust to to policymakers, to government officials, to business people at that particular time. It was it flew off the shelves. It was a bestseller. You had people like Bill Clinton and Bono talking about it at various um, uh, you know, UN um, stage-managed events. Uh, and, you know, I remember Jamie Peck, who was a, um, a very vociferous critic of, Jamie, uh, of Richard Florida as well, was saying that and one of his talks, he was saying that he was on a transatlantic flight or a trans-Pacific flight from, um, and there were people reading Rise of the Creative Class on, on the <laughs> plane, as was uh, as was Jamie Peck at the time. And Jamie sort of saying that people, he was getting knowing looks from people, like, oh, you're, you're a Florida, uh, Florida convert too. So, um, so, 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 yeah, so Richard Florida wrote this book and it was very, um, you know, it was exactly the right kind of language he was using that was sort of uh, pithy, but but kind of had a bit of academic weight to it, a lot of statistics, a lot of sort of, you know, things that were backed up with, with credible arguments, um, or so they seemed. And, yeah, it was just, it was hoovered up by a, 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 an urban or national governance structure which was really hungry for the new thing to do. And this provided them with the language to carry on doing the same kinds of things that they'd constantly be doing, which, you know, gentrification, um, the removal of workers' rights, all those kinds of things which create really problematic um, issues we see today. Mm. I think that's what, that's maybe a, um, a good point to sort of talk about one of the places which I think uh, this book kind of slightly draws on is your previous work on the creative city. Mm. Um, yeah. Could you talk a little bit about how the, the sort of relationship between that book and this yeah. book? Because I think it kind of fills it out quite nicely. Cool. So, yeah, so the creative city idea, which, again, Florida was very much part of um, was born out of this this desire for a new policy fad, a new policy ideal which needed to reimagine cities. Now, you think about what's happening um, in the States, in the particularly in the States, I guess, with the industrialization of the inner cities in the 70s and 80s, and then you've got people coming... Well, at that time, you had all, you know the white flight to the suburbs, and so which hollowed out the inner cities, leaving them sort of without any kind of um, funding. So there was descended into crime, and there's lots of immigrant neighbourhoods. But of course, in the 90s and the um, 2000s, you had a sort of back to the city movement because these spaces were suddenly um, more affordable. People were sick of living in the suburbs. You know, there were there was more sort of childless couples, and people were actually, uh, and then you know the financial industries were places people actually wanted to work because of the deregulation of the banks people could make huge amounts of cash right so people were flooding back into the downtown area but they needed to redevelop it and they needed to sort of they needed a hook in which to do that and so the creative city became this ideal which you could throw up a cultural quarter or a theater or an arts gallery or a cinema and you could plow loads of money into it but you could you could privatize the area around it you could you know whack up the uh, the rents and throw up some nice condos, uh, which you know the, the local immigrant population couldn't afford, and you know it's it's a gentrification just by another name. So, the, the creative city idea um, was, I guess, this prominent 
policy tool which was used based heavily on Richard Florida's work. And it was and it just exacerbated a lot of these problems and it created a lot of the consumption lifestyles which, you know, we've seen a backlash against with recent mm. Trump and Brexit stuff. So um so yeah, the Creative City is is a important policy tool. The other thing to quickly note is that when it first started, I guess back in ninety five, I think was the first mention of it really from a policy policy perspective. It was zoned. It was very much zoned. It was like, here's a creative quarter. This is where you go to consume culture and be creative. But now it's sort of bled into everything that the city does. And actually, with the onset of um, digital revolution and social media and whatnot and, t and Silicon Valley's preponderance, it's now become a sort of smart city agenda. But it, that, that, that rhetoric of creativity is still very much embedded within it. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so that's kind of how... And then, so that creativity is kind of f broken free from a... Uh, a narrative that the city of just the sort of city space or a particular city space that kind of bleeds into all different modes of um, work of people of politics which is why i've kind of broadened it out in this book mm. I guess. uh you're listening to resonance 104.4 fm uh, and more specifically to suite 212 uh i'm tom overton uh and i'm talking to ollie mold about his new book against creativity uh and as i was just saying suite Two on two is uh, about the kind of the relationship between uh, art and well, art and its social, historical, uh, <laughs> political, and cultural context. Uh, and one of the reasons that I was really interested to get you in to talk about this book is because it's kind of precisely about um, the the context in which kind of art making uh, happens sometimes in the mm. city. And uh, I kind of wanted to because just when you're talking there about the creative city, I wanted to quote a bit of, of your own book back back to you because I think it's quite good on. Um, art washing because mm -hmm. I think this is a really a kind of key way in which that sort yeah. of uh, that interaction between the arts and the context happens at the moment so and I'm going to quote this back at you uh, art washing has created a fog that obscures artists from clearly seeing how their artistic practices will impact places and their communities to be artistic and creative in a way that is di directly critical of gentrification is increasingly futile because of the sheer adaptability and flexibility of creative capital and its appropriative capacity but futility only lingers in the absence of collective action. Yes, the work of individual artists or groups can be co-opted as a vehicle for gentrifying capital, but if connected as part of a broader suite of resistive activities, it can also be used to foster alternative, other, perhaps even anti-capitalist spaces. I think it's kind of part of it. It's, it's quite a hopeful book, actually. Well, <laughs> it's, thanks. It's quite... I didn't mean, it, feel that way when I was writing, I must admit. <laughs> um, no, I mean, it, just, you know, it's, it's not simply... The title, you know, is against creativity. It's actually also... It has something that it's for as well, which, which, is, which yeah. is far more uplifting than I was expecting. But one of the examples uh, of that kind of... Um, of that sort of uh, collective action uh, and um, interesting sort of... Uh, creative thinking in, in the good sense uh is space hijackers i think that's one mm. of the kind of like the 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 best uh most well one of the, the most fun sort yeah. of anecdotes in there so i thought you could maybe describe yeah. their work well i'm, I'm indebted to um uh, jen harvey who's a prof of uh, theater um at queen mary for this she was the one that alerted me to it's, it's um yeah space hijackers there was this um who were a group of sort of they called themselves um and 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 architects and these are anarchist architects i guess they've disbanded now um also they say but um yeah there was this thing called the um the foxton's hunt which is something they they did is that the, the yeah, yeah. yeah so um yeah 2013 i think it was um the space hijackers created this sort of game i guess or this little fun performative piece of um, comedy uh where they would target a foxton's estate agent um in in uh, east london london fields i think it was and so they would get a group of people um there was one one person would be the fox and they dress up normally but they'd have a little fox tail kind of hidden in their coat and the rest of the people would be on bikes with um horses heads on them so this uh, fox the person leading the charge i guess would go into a foxton's and say show me the most expensive flat you have or the most expensive house i want to view it please and um, apparently some, someone would sort of see this as a bit of a jive to begin with and just sort of back off. But the, so the, the trick is to get, some, get a, a very um, over-eager estate agent to go, yeah, sure, sure, sure. And, you know, the commission uh, dollars flash into their uh, eyes. And so they, they would get into the Foxton's Mini, if you remember them, the, you know, the Foxton's Mini, which I think now defunct. Um, 
and they and and they would they would obviously be driven to this house or this flat or, or wherever it may be and at that time the fox would um, remove the tail and then be the fox and they would start you know waving out the windows and saying here i am i'm a fox i'm a fox and then the people would on the bikes would charge behind them with their horse's head on their um on their bikes all dressed in hunting paraphernalia with bugles and the lot <laughs> and they would and they would chase after this foxton's car um for as long as they possibly could before the, the estate agent cottoned onto the fact that this was a massive prank and i believe on a couple of occasions they actually got into the flat <laughs> so it was just you know and i guess the reason i think it's a great one to explore firstly it's funny secondly we all know how problematic foxtons are um in the gentr- you know in the gentrification debate um and but thirdly it's I think I make the point in the book that these kinds of acts of performative art aren't going to change the world. They're not these sorts of... And Space Hijackers say this, that they say we're not trying to create some sort of revolutionary other. That's not the point. The point is to be critical and to, you know, uh, poke fun at the system. My argument is that I think they're doing themselves a disservice here because what it does, it, it alerts people, particularly in that instance where they use comedy. And other people have used very, very... You know, other harsh tactics and quite shock tactics like the class war group that um, firebombed the serial killer cafe my my point of view you know we can debate the the the, the, the nature of those events but they what they do is that they bring gentrification and the problems they espouse crashing into the mainstream debate and they alert people who wouldn't otherwise be aware of it what's actually happening be that mm. through performative comedy or through acts of sort of civil disobedience and that's why i think they need to form part of this wider collaborative effort of resistance mm. you know i think i think as you i think as you point out that it kind of makes uh the fox and something makes kind of like theatrically apparent the kind of the class dynamics which are kind of already going and that on as because, well, like, absolutely. Because, because fox hunting is such a kind of uh, a class stratified sport absolutely yeah and i suppose also was kind of bound has a in a way I hadn't really thought about before, is sort of fox hunting sort of bound, bound up with Blairism and or like the kind of yeah. debate over sort of whether or not it should still be happening in the countryside. Uh. Well, there is that as well. I mean, it's, you know, it was it was in the news recently, wasn't it, with um, the, the trying to bring it back, aren't they, the, yeah. the Tories? But anyway, so yes, it's I think it's a, it's a nice little anecdote, and it, but it one that sort of plays to a much broader debate, which yeah. I outline in the book. Yeah. Um, another sort of um, a really, really kind of big... Uh, theme in the book uh, a sort of a, a term uh which because we, we, t- we talked about the, the sort of the, the physical kind of reality of the city and kind of a, another place that you, you go to talk about where creativity is uh, isn't isn't happening is um under the sort of the heading of um algocracy i'm not really sure how you, would you say algocracy algocracy yeah. yes yeah. algorithms algocracy yeah, yeah. um that's not my term that's no, uh, but, uh, john derren i think from yeah but the, Dublin, the, yeah. the i think it's a it would be good also yeah. to move on to sort of like how, uh, because I mean, also kind of draw, draws on Florida as well, but how that sort of uh, rhetoric of creativity is played out mm. um, through algorithm algorithms. Algorithms. Well, and it, it, well, I guess yes. Silicon Valley is posited as this most creative space, most creative tech cluster in the world, and it's where everyone wants to be and everyone wants to sort of emulate. Everyone wants a new Silicon Valley of this or that and the other. Um, but you know, you look deeper into the recesses of it and um it becomes very very apparent that the this algocracy which they have you know created is against the the very nature of creativity because it, it it's it works in a, you know algorithms by their very nature make us work in very formulaic ways and this algocracy which people have been writing about is the nature in which our social life has been completely governed by the modes of uh, the the computational code which has been written into the devices which we use more and more and more you know um there are watches like apple watches now which tell you how to breathe right so you can sleep breathe and it's just you know crazy the amount of tech that we have that sort of can can map our lives for us something as intimate as breathing and sleeping and 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 tell us through an algorithm how that you know how we can better that to, to lead more fulfilling lives but ultimately how we can you know um mm. pay more money how they mm. can advertise to us better so that's kind of you know 
the, the algocracy thing is it's 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 lauded as this sort of emancipatory way you know let algorithms you know change the way we live free us from work automate everything and just help us to liberate our lives and live more self-fulfilling it's it's rubbish it doesn't it, it completely controls us and locks us into these societies of control is the phrase that Deleuze used back in 95 so yeah that's what an algocracy yeah because i mean this is quite an inter- interesting moment where you it almost when you're talking about that it kind of links back right to the you know, the, the beginning sort of narrative of uh a, well, the bible to blair sort yeah of narrative of uh, creativity and if the idea this kind of original idea of cr- creativity is creating out of nothing like uh the what from one perspective uh, it's a you know, kind of occluded one that uh that people like uber and uh you know kind of airbnb and mm-hmm. so on and so forth are almost it, Present themselves as creating something out of nothing because they yeah. they have no physical infrastructure yeah. and they're making sort of uh, money out of nowhere. Yeah, absolutely. It's platform capitalism is the phrase that a lot of some people use, and it's yes, absolutely. Um, but it's not nothing, is it? It's, it's like it's the un- underutilized assets is the word they or the phrase they like to use. You know, you've got a you know spare wedding dress lying around. Why don't you flog it on a sharing app so someone else can use it? Or you know, it's there's a sharing app for everything, but you know it's it's not sharing. That's mm. that's the thing. That's that's the bottom line here. It's they're not creating something from nothing. They are making sure that everything that we own goes towards creating more of what they want, which is bigger profit margins. Mm. So that's that's why these things are not creative in any way, shape, or form because mm. they're just replicating more of those. They're spreading that that mantra of how can we make profit out of everything we own into more and more stuff that we just mm. have lying around because uh, i quite liked it um when you're talking about that when you bring in uh marcel most and the idea of the, the gift mm. and kind of ge- you know, genuine sharing uh, as a sort of anthropological kind of story yeah. and maybe that yeah so the, the potluck is the this um this uh, uh, this arrangement if you like which uh, he describes through the visits to the sort of polynesian and, and some of the pre-capitalist societies that have made it through to today and yeah this uh, the, the 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 whole idea that um reciprocity is very important within these societies and you and you give and you give gifts for work rendered and it's a it's considered very very important that you give back and it becomes almost a sort of like oh well look, you've given a gift so i have to give another one and then you give another gift for more work done and everything else and it creates a moral economy this is what some you know a lot of people have argued is that it's 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 an economic practice at its heart but it's a sort of moral economic practice that is not filtered through a market mechanism i.e money so it's it's far more um collegial it's far more fair and it's far more egalitarian in that way um you know so that's what um you know a sharing economy could look like mm. But you you plug that through a Deliveroo app or a, mm. whatever it might be, Uber or Airbnb or eBay, then it just becomes an extension of mm. everything else that exists. Because of course, the, the story um, of potlack being uh, disto- discovered or discovered by sort of a European mm. um, colonial officers, like every, every everywhere they found it, they of course closed it down because it completely. Uh, it completely sort of defeats the whole point of the, ca- the capitalism yes. you're trying to impose on people. Mm-hmm. It, it, yeah, exactly. It's, it's a commons, isn't it? It's, it's a, I guess, in, in, a, in a similar kind of way. It's that, it's that desire by power to uh, enclose things which could be used for profit, which currently aren't. Mm. You know, that's um, I think one of the you know the, the, the main things about this kind of creativity is that it just sort of looks for things which aren't somehow making money is how can we be creative and make that make us more money i did uh this is <laughs> citation needed on this but I did, I did see um a kind of a tweet floating around the other day about someone mentioning that they're in a city uh that um over staying over one night and someone didn't have a spare room and then staying in it and uh because it was a friend of a friend thinking it was a favor and the next morning saying oh thanks that'll be 40 euro (laughs) (laughs) in a way which just would actually now i mean it's presented as a joke but now sort of like since the advent of things like airbnb doesn't Mm. seem quite as ridiculous yes (laughs) no it's true it's it's silly i mean you, you nothing can be given away for free anymore um one of the the sort of the the 
the really big themes of the book, which I hadn't um, and I hadn't at all initially been expecting. But once you explain it, it really does make uh, really does make sense. Uh, and to the point at which I then um, couldn't conceive of the idea without <laughs> it is uh, is um, diffability. So um, the which is a sort of portmanteau word uh, for disability, but um, different abilities uh, <laughs> rather than disability. Yeah. Um, the, you quote Chris Downey, uh, the, bl- the blind architect, who says that there are two types of people in the world, those with disabilities and those who haven't found theirs yet. Um, and as I said, mm-hmm. this, this term disability takes the, the more positive approach by suggesting people are differently abled rather than yeah. it being a sort of uh, a binary like that. I wondered if we could go into that a bit. Like, yeah, of course. Well, it's... It's an important one to make, I think, important part of the argument um, because, the, the, you know, to be a creative person, we, we, we are told that you have to look a particular way, you have to be a particular way. Um, you know, the argument in the book is that, you know, usually that's white middle-class male and have full, you know, uses of your your body and your, your senses. And, you know, that's because, you know, capitalism is very good at marketing things to that kind of body, right? Um but disabled people don't fit that narrative and there's 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 two models of disability the biomedical model and the social model these are sociologists and anthropologists have told us for many years and currently i guess under things like the fit to work program and and all these kinds of technologies that are designed to help disabled people navigate the city and everything else we live in a biomedical model whereby people whose bodies don't conform to a particular mode of operation i.e to be fully functional and product productive um are somehow um, amended to be so, either chemically or technologically. Whereas the social model argues actually disability comes about through um, society's inability to accommodate for them. Um, and so, which is why we get the Chris Downey's arguments. And there's and there's a great phrase from some um, deaf architects, as, uh, no deaf people who are working in a particular building to make it more deaf friendly. This sort of the argument is well, why do we use the term hearing loss? You know, why don't we use the term deaf gain, for example? What is there to be gained by being deaf or by being blind? And I think that's a really important point because a lot of these, you know, disabled people, they're experiencing the world in vastly different and radically different ways to than the majority, if that's the right phrase to use. You know, I'll give the example of people with synesthesia who, you know, they, they mix up their senses so they... Um, you know, they can hear colour or they can see, um, you know, see sound and everything else. And that, you know, to to myself who doesn't have synesthesia, it's just a completely kind of alien experience. And if you collate that all and you think, well, the disabled people therefore are experiencing worlds that's just a completely different and therefore quite creative and quite you know, new and exciting and, and, and different. Worlds that, you know, can't be... Uh, co-opted or appropriated quite so easily so i think that's an important thing to make but then rather than bringing them in rather than saying okay great let's kind of use that motif to sell vodka for example mm, or whatever you, you do make the point yeah. that often these are actually there's an exact i can't remember what the example of the the it, advert it's, but, a, um, it's the vodka the, the yeah. deaf, deaf dancing I and mean, it's probably not the best argument but it's one i watched at the time which made me really angry to and but there's one i saw the other day it was there was a um there was a woman with Down syndrome, and there was, and she was advertising. I think it was Matalan, or there was a fashion thing. And what these do is that they they, they take these bodies and these disabled aesthetics, and they say, right, let's use it to kind of sell more shirts or vodka, or whatever it may be. And that's you know that's painted as oh, isn't that isn't it very progressive? It's no, because you're 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 using it just to sort of maintain that capitalist structure. What we need to do is empathetically connect with some of these people and and say look what kinds of worlds are you experiencing and how can we become how can we envision envision them more how can we kind of connect with them and experience it the way Mm. that you are it's difficult don't get me wrong and it requires time and effort and care and unconditionality and forgiveness and all that sort of stuff but you you know that would make for a far more creative progressive society than sort of bringing them into the mainstream and say right well if you've got bipolar we're going to retrofit the work program so that you can still work just like you know Mm. the way that we want you to so it's that's why i think disability and just very quickly the term diffability i hesitated to use it because i think that some people on twitter have rightly argued that diffability negates some of the disability that people would experience and i think Mm. that it's very important that when people use the word disability 
yes, it's good because it says that people are just differently able, but also not to downplay the fact that a lot of these people still suffer extreme amounts of prejudice mm. and still are disabled by yeah. society. So I just wanted to make that clear. No, absolutely. The, I mean, because one of the one of the the sort of the case studies you use in in that chapter um, is Jack Coulter, who's this synesthetic painter. Who, hmm. um, when I sort of went and looked him up, I didn't realize he, he's really young. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah, he's yeah. very, very successful. Uh, um, because I think he he kind of he has synesthesia, and uh, it's a good example of someone who has this, this com- different. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, because one of the phrases you use all the way through. Uh, that section of the book is, is normalization, hmm. the idea that of, of the making, making everything fit a particular sort of standard, uh, which, as you said, is, is generally a kind of an uh, able, <laughs> quote unquote, um, bodied white white man. Uh, and the, yeah, Jack Coulter has this synesthesia and creates these uh, these images which are based on the way that he sees, sees the world. What really interested me about that is often they look uh, they look some of them like kind of like a kind of neon version of Jack of Jackson Pollock. Yeah, which is interesting to have like because um, you, you still then have like a process of influence. Like mm. It's not coming from absolutely nowhere. It's kind of conditioned. I think what's interesting, I've, what I wanted to well, try to sort of think about, at least try to write about, is that it's for me. I guess it's not necessarily what they produce. Like the painting is important. I mean, yes, it's 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 good to see that, but I think it's the actual process by which they get to that point. Because the painting can be bought and sold in, in in the market, but I think it's understanding that that you know the creative process that they've gone through to actually get to that point. Like, what is you know what kinds of ways are they experiencing the world differently? And that's you know that's what I think is very very important. You know, to articulate for you know for Jack Coulter to articulate that to someone is kind of I guess codifying in a particular way. But the more we can do that, and the kind of the, the closer we can get that connection, then I think that opens up the majority to those kinds of worlds mm. and you know therefore makes them far more hopefully far more kind of empathetic and, and, and progressive and, and you know creative it's inter- there's a kind of there's a strange kind of irony in it because it's it's almost going back slightly closer to the kind of romantic model of the artist who is slightly apart and experiences something different uh, and then sort of feeds back into society from that position of difference. Mm. Um, yeah, I, yes, I guess I guess so. Um, although I guess the counter-argument would be that um, these people um, or the disabled people who who are doing this artistic work are... Are under extreme amounts of sort of societal pressures and marginalisation, the sort of creative genius, I guess. Although you know there are examples of sort of people who have kind of gone through various sort of programs in order to um, and then come out the other side as, as creative geniuses, if that's the right word. But um, but yeah, I think there's a sense that it's it's the intersection of their differability along with the sort of societal pressures that they've um, experienced very very readily, which which creates. Um, the kinds of spaces and places and experiences which I think are very important mm. to the world. Well, I think one of the one of the points you make very well, and I, I think is another one of the reasons that Richard Florida is sort of threaded through the book quite a bit, is that um, Florida has this idea that um, creativity is apolitical, mm. which is kind of really something to, to engage with. I think. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's he has you know he's at pains to um say that creativity is not a political thing you know he you know he sort of says i voted for conservatives and um sorry republicans and democrats and all the, and everything else in between and you know i just find that find that narrative very disheartening because it's sort of you know to sort of elevate something like that above um party politics is one thing but to elevate it above politics per se i think is 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 to empty the creative idea of any kind of ethics that it has um and that's that's a common trope in a lot of appropriative mechanisms is to sort of cast it as very neutral Mm. to cast things as and use the vernacular of neutrality to to suggest to take away any kind of um you know political or progressive agenda that it might have and you know i think we need to be very wary when people talk about oh we are all creative or we are all innovative or we are all um whatever it might be because it um it just sort of 
it, it, it's a red flag for a kind of um, emptying it of kind of political ethics and filling it with a sort of capitalist ethics. Mm. Absolutely. Um, yeah. um, I suppose the as we're kind of drawing slightly towards the end, uh, the, the there were there kind of there are two other sort of um, texts which uh, you kind of engage with on, on, on the way through. And one of them is. Um, a lot more recent than the Richard Florida, uh, and it's Adam Grant's Originals uh, oh, yeah. from 2016. That's another one you kind of take on. I think, especially as we just talked a little bit about, because I suppose one of the the words which is bound up with creativity uh, and that idea of creating from nowhere, uh, and all of the problems inherent in that, and whether or not um, yeah, where does influence come from? This is mm-hmm. a whole other sort of debate. Um, it's yeah. You can't really have that conversation without having that one. So can yeah. you talk a little bit about? Yeah. So Adam Grant's book Originals is really interesting because it, you know the argument. His argument is multifaceted. To, to you know not to do him a disservice, it's quite broad and detailed at times. But generally, it is that you know to be a creator or to be an original is the term that he uses. But essentially, he means like an entrepreneur, someone who is successful in business or in whatever context you use. You have to have a certain number of attributes so for example you have to you know actually these people they procrastinate quite a lot they have a distinctly um, average back catalogue of ideas uh, and usually they're not the first person or institution to actually do this thing they just sort of do it in the best way now the problem i've got with adam grant's stuff is is again multifaceted but he has he uses all these different examples of how you can be original in civil rights or in feminism or in you know, um, social movements, but then he squares that using all these kind of wonderful, I say wonderful, I'm in inverted commas, all these kind of strange and wonderful um, studies done by sort of management psychologists and behavioural analysts to suggest that, oh yes, um, you know, you can be original, you can be a fantastic entrepreneurial original tech worker by copying the 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 um, the protest movement against Slobodan Milosevic, right? And he segues between going through the the, the, in, the intricate details of the Serbian revolution with f- pharmacy companies, I think it is, <laughs> or one, one a tech company, seamlessly segues. But, and it's just, I, I don't, you know, I don't think for any one moment that there's 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 you're saying the two contexts are exactly the same. But it just comes, it it creates this idea that okay, well we can use. You know Martin Luther King's ideas of of civil rights movement as a sort of way to think about well you know Martin Luther King did it in this way therefore if you if you ape those characteristics you can you know, be a multi billionaire mm. you know and it, that's what I think is really problematic it's sort of it, it like I say in the book it flattens the contextual field mm. and it just says that feminine you know if you're operating within you know your women's rights or gay rights or civil rights or um, you know uh, you're trying to overthrow an oppressive regime it doesn't matter. If you operate in this way, you'll be successful. Context just doesn't matter. Mm. But I'm, I'm sorry, Adam, it does. And I just <laughs> think that you know you can't you can't reduce them to a, to a set of character character traits, which you then just sort of transpose onto entrepreneurs. And hey, mm. you know, all of a sudden, I'm a, I'm a tech billionaire. It just it, yeah. Mm. Well, because that. that, that um Connecting between different sort of planes thing. Uh, Marnaby Mar- also have you a much older book, um, Arthur Custler's The Arch- Act of Creation yeah. in 1964. There's, you talk there about um, bisociations. Yes, between- that's right. So what, Arthur, um, what, what he says, what Arthur's saying is that, you know, you, the creative act, and he uses punning as well, which I think is interesting, yeah. but to, as, as a sort of collision of two different fields. And, um, you know, that, I think that's a, it's a good argument. It's one that has a, has a lot of validity up to a point. Um, but then I think I think what he he doesn't really grapple with is the fact that those fields are very very mutable in the first place, mm. right? And you, they actually the rules of engagement change, you know, depending on who's controlling them. So yes, by colliding, you know, um, I think it's was it Shakespeare and um, horse racing to create mm. that pun um, that he does, you know. But I think I outline actually those educational fields change, and you know, Shakespeare can be known and not known, so it they're not as solid. as as he thinks, I think that the, the, the for the listeners, I think the pun is about um, King, Kingdom for a Horse yes, being right. different in the context of uh, Grand National, yeah. and um, Richard III, yeah. 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 Well, the, the, the I did maybe me think that the, the, it's interesting, sort of using Shakespeare in the context of a conversation about about puns, because Shakespeare was a big punner, <laughs> like, <laughs> he was, yeah, yeah. like, and and also as you kind of put, you point out, it's um, 
I mean, it's, he's come up before Shakespeare because of the the whole idea of um, that in the period in which he was writing, there was a very mm. different sense of what uh, an author, what kind of mm. like a creative yeah. individual was. It was before you know, the romantic conception of, of an right. author and that kind of creativity, and he happened very much more. You know, he was writing for a company, and he was very much more embedded in the people around him, and it was a, he was an actor as well. And That's so right. He, yeah, he has a, a different relationship to it, but. As you know, <laughs> thousands and hundreds of thousands of words have been written about this, but the uh, he's also completely the image of that sort of creation. He is. Um, yes. which is it would have been interesting to know what he, what he, you know, where he would have stood in this in <laughs> politically in this respect. Yeah. yeah. Um, the sort of drawing to a close. Uh, the, you end the book, as I said, on a sort of um, a, a kind of a unexpectedly. Uh, for the, the title against creative, yeah. unexpectedly positive note because it, it's not the book is uh, not completely against the, the abstract idea of creativity. Mm. It's against the very specific um, abuse of, of, of creativity, yeah. I suppose. And you, you end uh, actually in a. It's interesting in itself. You, you end in quite a kind of a kind of literary uh, mode. You end yes. by, by quoting. Uh, You're going to say creative, but oh, well, you, I end in a creative way. Yeah. <laughs> Go on, you can say it. it's fine. I'm going to get a lot of that. I think it's fine. Um, yeah, I was going to talk about that this, this is London Resonance 104.4 FM is perhaps London's most creative radio station. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, sh- I shan't do that. Let's not go. There. Um, but yeah, you end uh, by. Um, drawing on uh, Lewis Carroll in a way in which he yeah so I mean I grew up reading Alice in Wonderland Lewis Carroll was um, I think a very um, underrated author in fact you know he's you know, highly celebrated but even so I think he's an excellent author um, yeah so the, the the White Queen when she says oh I imagine six possible things before breakfast I mean you know Alice is saying how can you be 101 years old you know I don't don't believe it it's impossible and the Queen says well you just need practice in so um, I, I wanted to use that primarily because I think that, you know, I was riffing on what Lefebvre was saying about, in, you know, reaching for the impossible. And I think in order to, you know, put bluntly to sort of get past the, 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 the capitalist mode that, you know, that colonizes our imagination, you know, capitalism has kind of commandeered how we think about the world. In order to sort of wrench ourselves away from that, we need to start believing and start practicing thinking about what is impossible and how can we bring that in. So, yeah, so I sort of say there's six impossibilities. Um, do you want me to quickly go through them? Well, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, so I think, you know, it, it, they're, they're, they're modelled around the, book, the, the chapters of the book. So within work, clearly, there is, you know, you can create sort of co-ops and things that are, that are impossible to, to... Impossible in so far as, you know, they aren't the, um, the ways in which people think that work should be done. You know, it's, it's impossible to think of how you can scale up a cooperative. But there are examples... Um, the Recuperadas, the Mondragon University, just a few of the ones. We've gone through the idea of even possibility within disability. You know, I think that's very, very important. Um, and some of the stories which I've told uh, in the book with Joel Salinas and everything else are actually kind of unbelievable at some point. Mm. Um, when in politics, you know, um, there's lots of really interesting examples um, of sortition being used to govern schools. Um, uh, there's an example of Chiran, which is a city in Mexico, which I read about after the I finished the book, but where they've completely defenestrated local politicians, and they don't engage with it, and they manage to drop crime and everything else because of it. And you know, sortition, right? What if it's good enough for the jury system? It's good enough for our justice system. Why is it not good enough for our political Can you system? Quickly explain sortition. Well, sortition is where you um, pick people based like out of a hat, govern people out of a hat. It's like jury service. Mm. And then, so the fourth one, you have got the tech. You know, what what it goes back to what we're talking about—the sharing economy. It's like what can we think of a creating an app or creating a technological platform which doesn't conform to the Silicon Valley model or can we conform to something which is far more democratic yes these things exist Um, and then about the city well you know it's seemingly impossible um, protest movements that have won for example the the skateboarding I was involved in that with the skateboarders in London that seemed like an impossible mission Mm. and then finally the South Bank the South Bank sorry yeah Yeah. um, where they you know they managed to um, defeat their um, gentrification proposals and then finally it's it's that whole idea of what creativity is it's about understanding that we can reach for worlds which don't have this sort of capitalist mantra embedded within it and that does sound very utopian it does sound very kind of um uh you know um trying to reach for things which i guess 
don't necessarily exist yet. But I think that's what we need to do. And we need to have a, a lot of practice in that if we are to rid ourselves of the injustices of this contemporary world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, thanks very much, Ollie, Ollie Mould. Uh, Thank you. Against Creativity, uh, out possibly now, yeah. <laughs> depending on when you listen now to it. Tomorrow. But yeah, it's, I'm sure you can find it in shops. Lovely cover. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, uh, I've been Tom Overton at TW Overton, TW underscore Overton on Twitter. Uh, this has been Resonance 104.4 FM and uh, Sweet 212. Uh, we're back. Actually, I'm back next week uh, with a show about uh, landscape uh, writing and politics. Um, uh, and uh, with Melissa Harrison and um, Gary Budden. And uh, there'll be a, a, a Sweet 212 extra on that. Uh, thanks very much for choosing, tuning in. This program has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.